Welcome to Into the Well. I'm your host, Ryan Wilms. I started this show as a place to share my experiences and my journey towards living authentically and mindfully, and also to learn from those who are truly walking the path, healing themselves and inspiring others. By balancing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we can learn to live in harmony with ourselves and our environment. We'll be exploring different tools and modalities used to create sustainable well-being for a fulfilling life. So thank you for joining me. On this episode of the podcast, I get a chance to have a conversation with Dr. Robert Glover. He's a psychotherapist, counselor, author of one of my favorite books, No More Mr. Nice Guy. He runs different men's groups and helps men recover from the nice guy syndrome, as he's coined the term. This book has been one that I've read a couple of times and have learned so much about myself, my father, and and my other relationships as well. And it was great to chat with him, ask him some of the questions that I've been looking forward to learning about his own experience and process, both in writing the book and since writing the book. And the core belief that many of us don't feel safe to be ourselves, where that comes from and how we can begin to remedy and heal this deep belief. Um, Dr. Glover is full of energy, great insight, and I really feel excited to have shared some time with him and now this podcast with you. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Glover, first off, I just want to say thanks so much for for taking the time and getting back to me. Um, you know, your book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, has been a huge catalyst in my own growth and healing um, it was actually the first book that I read when I started sort of looking under my the emotional hood of the car, mm-hmm. per se. And then I actually reread it um, in the last couple of months, um, just before I reached out to you. So uh, great timing. And, um, you know, I mean, it's great timing for anyone to discover this book at any time and your work yeah. as a whole. So um, Thank thanks you. again. Thank you for the plug. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. <laughs> thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So, um you know, you've shared sort of the process of, of writing this book and it taking a number of years to settle into that and find a publisher. Um, but I'm curious to start a little bit before that and just kind of understand a little bit more of your own journey. And when you started discovering some of these things in yourself, um, these sort of nice guy tendencies or traits in a way that you could start working with them. Uh, okay, that's a good place to start. Um, if you had met me 30 years ago, I would have told you, I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And and I, I, I thought that was a good thing. I, cu- I couldn't figure out why everybody else didn't have, you know, a similar life philosophy of, you know, treating people well and being nice and being generous and avoiding conflict and things like that. And um, how... How I had my path changed was I was in my second marriage, probably about three years into it, and um, we were struggling, and um, I, I, the, the more my wife was moody and unhappy and sexually unavailable, the harder I tried to make her happy and get her in a better mood and make her sexually available. And um, after about three years of that, she told me, she said, you need to go get help. I said, why? You're the one who's unhappy and moody and sexually unavailable. And she says, I can't take your passive aggressiveness anymore. And I, I'm not even sure I knew what passive aggressiveness was. And um, she says, everybody thinks you're such a nice guy, but you're not so nice. You don't treat me well. And I thought, 
What's she talking about? You know, I do everything for her. I try to make her happy. I I, I walk on eggshells. I I avoid conflict. I'm always giving. I I put my needs last. And so um, she said, well, I I can't put up with this anymore. You got to go get help. And so I I actually got into therapy and joined a 12-step group trying to figure out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife treat me better. And um, I luckily, I landed in some good places. I, I, I landed in a 12-step group for sex addicts, quickly found out I wasn't a sex addict. I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the first place in my first time in my life, in the first place, I had a safe place to just start opening up about me. And I'd go to this 12-step group. I met like six o'clock, you know, one morning a week in the morning. And I was actually excited to get up that early and go because for the first time in my life, I was revealing things about me I'd never let anybody see before. I grew up in a really fundamental Christian church. Uh, I, I went to a Christian college that would kick you out of school for drinking or having sex. I was a minister for eight years all, all prior to that time. Mm-hmm. And um, I just had learned. And my, my dad was critical and, and demeaning. So I just learned to hide everything, keep it all underground, keep it a secret, and then try to be good. And so in that 12-step group, it was just such a great place. It was all guys, and I could just open up and reveal me. I also got uh, started working with a therapist, and then soon started. I got into a men's group, continued that process of being more honest and more open about me, learned about boundaries, learned about self-care, learned about being authentic and transparent and honest, and um, it, it began a really powerful journey for me. Now, after I'd been doing this, I don't know how long, maybe a year or two into this process, I, I was in a, I had a private practice as a marriage and family therapist. That's my training and background. And I started noticing men, especially coming in um, either individually or with their wives or girlfriend, saying the same things I'd been saying in my relationship. They, they, they would literally say, I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. I treat my wife well. I, I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. I, 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 I buy her the new car she wants. I try to do everything to make her happy, but it's never good enough. When's it going to be my turn? Um, how come she never wants to have sex anymore? How come she's angry all the time? And I thought, man, I can finish these guys' sentences for them. And that was really a, a breakthrough for me because I realized I'm not the only one with this roadmap with this idea that if I'm just a good guy, if I just treat everybody well, if I just, you know, keep the things about me hidden that I don't want anybody to see, then everything should work out and work smoothly. And I thought there's other people a lot like me, especially other men a lot like me. So uh, I started my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group probably 25 plus years ago. Um, invited half a dozen or so guys to come be a part. We met every other Wednesday, and every Wednesday I set aside, and I just started writing. I just started writing what I was learning and coming to understand about my own nice guy syndrome, how I got to be that way, how it affected me in life, not just relationships, but in other ways as well, mm-hmm. and and how to do it different, how, how to break free from that that paradigm. And I just started sharing these these little chapters with the men in my my nice guy group soon i had a second one going and and their wives and girlfriends and they were all saying robert you need to write a book you need to go on oprah Mm -hmm. and uh, this could be a bestseller i know a lot of people that need this so i did i did i kept writing and took about seven years and you know a few different 
coming at it from a few different ways till finally I settled in on it. And it took about another three years to get it published. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of publishing companies said, Robert, we like your book. The editor said, I like your book. It's a good book. It's well written. Uh, but our marketing department says men won't buy a self-help book, especially one that tells them they're losers. And I said, <laughs> you don't know the men I'm, I'm, I'm working with and I'm writing to. So that, that was um, about 20 years ago. Finally got a publisher, came out. Uh, in print in early 2003. This is now 2020, so 17 mm-hmm. or so years later. And my royalty checks keep getting bigger every year. So apparently men buy self-help books. Apparently they <laughs> resonate with it. Maybe thank Amazon for that. When when guys look at a book and Amazon said, people who bought this book also bought this book, this book, and this book. And guys mm-hmm. would just click on all of those and, and download. So mm-hmm. that's how it came to be. And in and, and the 17 or so years since the book was published, I continue to work on me. I've been through my life changes. I've continued to work with probably thousands of other nice guys at at, at one time, probably about six, seven years ago, uh, towards the end of when I was in private practice, I was doing five No More Mr. Nice Guy men's groups a week. Uh, Now I do workshops, seminars, teach online classes, do virtual workshops, uh, so I'm, I'm still in, in, right in the thick of uh, the nice mm-hmm. guy thing. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to even go back a little bit again. Like when you first joined that 12-step group and were starting to work with the therapist in the men's group, you know, how, how quickly were you able to, you know, you had the safe space to start exploring these things. Right. And then how was the transition to taking that back to your relationships outside of that group? Was it still pretty scary and you know, took some um, time? Yes and no. Yes and no. It it wasn't, you know, nothing is linear. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, it it went in fits and starts, spits and starts, uh, kind of was circular at times. Um, But but uh, I'll give you an example. This was pretty early on. Um, Like I said, uh, my my emotional training was, you know, keep everything hidden. And and I'll just kind of put out there for people that are wondering, you know, what is this nice guy? My basic definition of a nice guy is, is a man who since early life, internalized a belief that he's not okay just as he is. Now, this happens at a really early age. It's based on our life, painful life experiences we have as children. We internalize we're the cause of that. So there must be something wrong with us. All children do that, whether we know it or not. So a nice guy does two things. He, he tries to become what he thinks other people want him to be so that they will love him, like him. He'll get his needs met the one have sex with him, whatever. He'll get his promotion. So they're trying mm-hmm. to become what they want other people to be. So it's not really particularly authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more chameleon-like. And they tend to hide. The second part is they hide the things about them they think other people might have a negative reaction to. And the two biggest things that nice guys tend to hide are their needs. They, they believe that they're bad for having needs and other people will respond negatively. The second thing they tend to hide is their sexuality. And that applied to me as well. So I I was in this 12-step group, and I'd started going to a therapist. And and I don't know, maybe I was two or three months into it. And um, as I said, prior to that, I never revealed myself to anybody. If I thought it might upset anybody, anything, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. something, a thought I had, something I'd done, something I wanted to do, if I thought it might upset anybody, I kept it to myself and either kept it hidden or tried to manipulate them into, like, maybe doing what I want without ever asking for what I wanted. But around this time, I, I remember I, I had an, an impulse. It was a sexual impulse, and it was, it was kind of dark, and it, it scared me. I didn't act on it. 
Um, but it scared me that I, you know, wow, I, I, I have that ability to have these kind of thoughts and, and to think that would be a good idea to act in this particular way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I th- and in the past, I would have just pushed that down and kept it secret. So mm-hmm. soon after that, I went to my 12-step group and I just told them, you know, I had this thought, this impulse. I didn't act on it, but I, it kind of scares me that I would even mm-hmm. have that impulse. And, you know, you know, they're, they're all going, why are you even here, Robert? That, that, that's tame. You know, we're, we're actually doing really shitty stuff, you know. Um, you know, but they say, thank you for sharing, Robert. You know, it's a 12-step group, so, you know, that's what they say. Um, thank you for sharing. So I thought, okay, that, that, that wasn't so terrible. And about an hour later, I had an appointment with my therapist, and it was a woman therapist I was working at at that time. And I, I told her the same thing. And she just kind of looked at me with compassion and curiosity and said, well, uh, let's see what that story's about. Let's, let's dive into that. You know, no, mm-hmm. no negative reaction. No, like, Hey, you're a total pervert or you know, I need to call the police or, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, what kind of human being are you to think that way? It was just like con- concern and compassion. And, and we explored it. So I, I remember driving home from that therapy session thinking, Wow, that that wasn't terrible at all. I'm batting a thousand, you know, so mm-hmm. far so good. And I thought, you know, I might as well go home and tell my wife, you know, mm-hmm. even if she has a negative reaction, I'm still batting 666. You know, maybe it's <laughs> not so terrible. So um, I went home and I said, hey, I, I got to talk to you about something. And we went back to the bedroom, sat down on the bed. And, and I remember telling her, I said, um, I got to tell you something. I already talked about this in my 12 step group. I already talked about it with my therapist. And then I told her, you know, what the impulse was. And, um, I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I was married to, to, to my second wife for 14 years. And I used to tell her that her middle name ought to be overreact because that's what she did in every situation. And she never overreacted to that because she, she knew it was true as well. And so, I, you know, I'm telling her this dark impulse, not knowing what her response would be. But I already had two positive responses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got done. And she just looked at me and she said, um, she said that, that kind of scares me a little bit. And it doesn't surprise me. I'm glad you told your 12-step group. I'm glad you told your therapist. I'm glad you told me. And she never brought it up again. And I thought, wow. I mean, that's how it works. If you're just open and honest and transparent Mm -hmm. and real, maybe people don't all go ballistic or, you know, hurt you or Mm -hmm. abandon you. So that that was early on, and that was really powerful. And I have to say... A big part of my own personal nice guy recovery has has to work at continue being both that honest and transparent and open person. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've been working on that for 25 years. It comes much, much easier than it used to. I mean, even now I do interviews and, you know, I talk about things I would not have talked about 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. People people will in my seminars or classes or webinars will often say, Robert, I really appreciate just how, how open and honest and transparent and authentic you are. And I never would have been accused of being authentic or open 30 years <laughs> <laughs> so I take that as a compliment, but I'm, yeah. I'm still, I'm in a men's program. I've been in a program for three years now with about 30 other guys and we meet and have online sessions and I still work at, at, at being that open, transparent person. And, um, I, I, I don't know. I say no more, Mr. Nice Guy. Don't try to do this alone. Find safe people to do this work with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I'm still, you know, with, 
you know, safe people and I'm still doing my work. Um, that, that doesn't mean that it's exactly the same as it was 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they talk in, in a lot of 12-step programs about, like, peeling the onion, that this yeah. work comes in layers. And um, I still find that to be true. Uh, every new relationship I've been in over the last 15 years brought new layers to peel off. Connecting with men and going deep in a men's program brought new layers. Um, mm-hmm. Leaning into my passion and challenging myself professionally peels new layers. This whole pandemic, you know, there's mm-hmm. new layers of stuff to get peeled back. So yeah. um, we'll keep doing the work, and I'm, I'm a big fan of not doing it alone, doing it with a tribe, doing it with a coach, doing it with, with other people to help you through. Yeah, I think that's so important. I think it's it's you know you can make progress alone, but you really do need help and support and those mirrors around you and having those safe spaces with a good therapist, coach, or, or men's group for me has been absolutely essential. Yeah, um, you know I think it's uh, something that's really interesting that really resonated the second time that I read your book goes back to sort of that deep core belief that it's not safe to be myself, Yeah, you know, and how really universal, like you said, that is, um, nice guys and, and really probably just about everybody else. Um, but it's, you know, it's an interesting thing to, to uncover. Um, you know, like you said, there's layers and layers and it's, I've been kind of going through this work as not quickly, but thoroughly and, diving in as much as I can head on. And it still took me a few years to actually feel the fact that it isn't safe to be myself. And then beyond that, why, why is that? And realizing that I don't trust love. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I've sort of learned to regulate the amount of love that I feel um, even from my parents where I know intellectually that there's this unconditional love but I've learned to conditionalize how much of that I'm allowing in. So, yeah. You yeah. Know, it's Welcome to the club. Of, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, okay, okay, can, can I go on that just a yeah, little bit? Because yeah, th- yeah. That, is, that is really so crucial. I think you just hit on one of the, the core pieces um, that, that most human beings struggle with, and that is around um, feeling loved and lovable. And one of the things I stress in No More Mr. Nice Guy is that recovery from the nice guy syndrome isn't about becoming a different person or a better person. It's about becoming more you. It's loving mm-hmm. you, that, that perfectly imperfect you, that you warts and all. And a big part of that is releasing those inaccurately internalized messages about ourselves that we internalized at, at a very young age. And when I say very young, I'm talking three weeks old, three months old, three years old. Children are narcissistic by nature, um, and they believe they're the cause of everything that happens to them. And so when un- uncomfortable things happen to them, they're hungry and not fed. They're, they, they go to the bathroom in their diaper and they're not changed, or they're cold and they're not held, whatever. Anything that's uncomfortable to a child, they internalize into the, the very primitive part of their emotional brain, into the amygdala, the survival part of their brain, 
Um, they, they internalize these messages even before they have language capability. The amygdala doesn't store language. It doesn't store picture memory, stores emotional memory. And that's then wired into every other part of the brain as it develops. And for us men, that takes about 25 years before our brain is completely developed. But it is hardwired into that emotional part that says that, that, that were we inaccurately, inaccurately internalized who I am and how I fit into the world. Now, what happens to all of us, and I've been a marriage therapist for over 30 years. So I've worked with a lot of couples. I've had my share of relationships. I've, I've bumbled my way through all of them. And one thing that, that I found, and this relates to what you were saying, is that every one of us has what I call a number one relationship fear, our, our, our top relationship fear that we all developed in our earliest relationships with our parents and other people around us at a very young age. And so... We carry that number one relationship fear into adulthood and is, is deeply wired into our emotional brain. We're usually not cognitively conscious of it. And in workshops and seminars, I'll go around the room and ask guys, all right, what's your number one fear of getting into relationship? And guys almost never have to think about this. This is true for women as well. Um, the guys will say, well, like getting smothered, getting trapped being found out, getting abandoned, being cheated on, being abused, be, you know, all these, and these are, these are all legitimate fears, and they're all telling a story of our earliest love relationships, those with mom and dad. And this isn't like to point fingers at mom and dad and say they were bad parents. They were human. They, they, they could not love us unconditionally. Humans don't do that. Um, mm-hmm. It's a myth to believe any one human can either love themselves or love somebody else unconditionally. That's not wired into us. So, but, but what happens, they were imperfect parents. And we had experiences in life that had nothing to do with our parents, that I had surgery at five days old. That left an emotional mark on me. That had nothing to do with mom and dad, but it still mm-hmm. impacted me. And it, I think, triggered a large abandonment issue for me. So, so I think my number one relationship fear is abandonment. I'll be left. So as children, we all develop defense mechanisms that do two things. One is to try to manage the discomfort we're feeling in the moment, and the other is to try to prevent similar experiences from happening in the future. Okay, so get this. You get into a relationship, and this could be with a friendship, but let's say you get into a relationship with a woman, and you, you want to love her and you want to be loved by her. But both you and she have a number one relationship fear. You have this thing that you and she are both afraid of. Could be similar. It could be very different, right? And both of you have your own defense mechanisms against that fear happening. So now here you both are in a relationship wanting to love and be loved, but both of you being afraid of being loved, of loving and being loved, and both of you having defense mechanisms to protect you from that fear. And from that place, we try to have happy, successful, loving relationships. <laughs> and because most of us are not conscious of our fear and we're not conscious of our defense mechanisms, we, most relationships eventually turn into some kind of battlefield. Either where we call a truce and just kind of go to our own corner and leave each other alone, or we battle each other and battle each other, thinking if they just changed, you know, we wouldn't feel this way. Um, And for nice guys, usually it involves us just trying harder to do more of the same, make the other person happy, and stop doing whatever seems to make them unhappy. But that is our number one relationship defense mechanism, trying to make the other person happy or not do the things that make them unhappy. And all that does is block 
the flow of love. It blocks our ability to love and our ability to receive love. So that's why I call relationships powerful personal growth machines. If we are conscious and usually if we have some help, again, trying to do this alone is like, you know, trying to be like evil Knievel and drive a motorcycle over the Grand Canyon. You know, don't try this at home. You know, he's a trained professional and he still killed himself. So (laughs) don't try to do relationships alone. Have a coach, have a therapist, have a group, have a tribe, and hopefully your partner does as well. And in that, we can begin to be observers of, okay, what is my greatest fear of being in a relationship? Mm -hmm. Okay, say my greatest fear is being left. What do I unconsciously do to try to avoid getting left? Well, okay, maybe I try to manage my, my wife's behavior and try to make her never have bad or negative thoughts about me or never withdraw from me or never upset her. Um, just last night, my wife and I had a discussion. Um, and, and I knew in the moment what she was saying to me was not the, the – she was giving me an emotional story. We just got a new puppy this week. So we're, 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 we're training a puppy. And um, – and we put it in a, in a, a little kennel at night, and, and it cries at night, and then it messes in the kennel. And my wife gets up, gets up before me to exercise, so she's been cleaning the kennel when she gets up. And I'm really involved with the puppy as well, and the two kids are involved with the puppy. But last night, we were sitting down after dinner, and my wife says, I do everything around here. You never help me with anything. I have to, you know, do all the dishes, you know, and clean it up and take the garbage out. And and you never turn the overhead fans off at night. I'm the only one that turns them off. And I thought, and I asked her, I said, so really what's going on here? (laughs) I knew that couldn't be the issue because, you know, I do dishes. And when I often do them, she said, no, let me do them. And I go, no, I like doing them. I'm going to do dishes too. And I do turn off fans, but that's more important to her than it is to me because I I live in in Mexico. I like the air moving at night. And, And I know I contribute a lot. So I knew that wasn't the issue, but the old part of me would have been to try to figure out how to make her happy. You know, you know what, what's going on here? What's really going on here? And we were actually having this discussion in front of my 12-year-old stepdaughter and the puppy. And I just looked at her and I told my wife, I said, you know, most of the time you and I have a fight. I don't really even know what we're really fighting about. I don't really even know what's really happened here. I said, can you, re- can you tell me what's really going on for you? Mm-hmm. And I think she was just feeling overwhelmed is all. And I think that might be her story is that she's going to be left doing all the heavy lifting and be and be alone doing all the heavy lifting while everybody else gets to play with the puppy or, you know, whatever that story might be. Mm-hmm. But because I could just sit and listen rather than trying to make it all better. And I even teased her a little bit. And I even said, well, you know, you turn fans off because you want them off. I leave them on because it doesn't matter to me like it does to you. And I kind of like them on. And, mm-hmm. and, and she said, well, well, what air are you trying to move anyway? So the air from up above, that's hot. I'm trying to move it down. And she goes, oh. Okay. (laughs) But I just, instead of trying to make it better, which was my old pattern, Mm -hmm. I just let her be upset at me and tell her, I actually don't even understand what we're fighting about right now. Can you tell me what really Mm -hmm. is bothering you? And then, you know, after about 90 seconds, I could see her body just kind of relax. And and I I, kind of pulled her next to me and I said, kiss me. And I gave Mm -hmm. her a kiss. And then she just relaxed, and then we had a good rest of our evening. And to this day, I mean, this is only like 12 hours later, I'm still not really sure what really triggered her. I think just feeling overwhelmed. And, mm-hmm. and you know, because I didn't try to fix it, we got through it quicker. Now, I don't always do that so well. Sometimes I get triggered, and my defense mechanisms come in as well. They often do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the, this is the work we get to keep doing. Um, you know, sometimes it seems like trivial, you know, turning fans on and off, but that's usually yeah. not the real issue. There's yeah. usually something a little bit deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you mentioned how important it is to have a, a therapist or a group in this process, but I also feel like even just how you're talking about, there's a level of awareness and consciousness that you need to have. Have you sort of developed a meditation or mindfulness practice that um, has allowed you to sort of dig into that? It sounded like you did some, the writing and sort of that journaling early on was pretty powerful for that as well. Yeah, I I do uh, a lot of things to try to be conscious. Um, And so that's that's a good question. And so, for example, I've been married to my wife for three and a half years. And about a half half a year into it, we were having these conflicts. Our defense mechanisms were coming up. Uh, I think she has a bigger fear of being abandoned than I even do. And um, and so that that was coming up. And so I I joined, I got a coach and joined a men's program mainly to help keep me conscious um, Mm -hmm. because I was just falling into old patterns that I couldn't break out of on my own. And uh, I'm really, I like the coach that I've been working with for three years. His name is John Wineland, and he's worked a lot with David Data. And he's really into, I mean, he he was raised Buddhist. Um, He's into Kundalini Yoga. He's into Qigong. He's into a lot of energy and breath. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I do, I do meditation. I'll, I'll do Qigong. Um, I'm, I'm big at just going out in my garden and just sitting and being still. I, I like being out in nature. Um, I, I have, I've developed good guy friends to help keep me conscious. And I tell everything about me to my guy friends. So they kind of give me feedback. I have probably at least Besides my men's program I'm in, I probably have about four other accountability groups I'm in with men. A writer's accountability group, an exercise mm-hmm. accountability group, just another commitment to life accountability group. We've been mm-hmm. meeting together for a year and a half. So I, I've got all of these ways to, to keep me conscious. And, and I mm-hmm. read, and as I said, the meditation, um, and all of those ways. I, I've never found just one way that does everything. Yeah. So I, 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 I try to have a whole mixed bag of things to help keep me aware. And, and the biggest part of it is just trying to stay honest with me and then staying honest with everybody outside of me as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we quit being honest with ourselves, that's when we usually get into the most trouble. And, um, and so these practices help keep us honest. You know, I say I'm going to exercise, but I don't get around to it, right? Mm-hmm. So, but, and the, the not exercising is a form of being, me being dishonest to myself because mm-hmm. I think of some every day has some new excuse or some new reason for not exercising. That's my yeah. dishonesty, right? Mm-hmm. And so having accountability for these types of things is really powerful. The practices are great, but I think the accountability is as important or even more important than the practices because probably we all have good intentions. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to meditate, yeah. you know, 15, 30 minutes every day. I have those good uh, um, intentions and I get distracted and I don't meditate. I don't do my Qigong practices. I don't get it. I've got a gym mm-hmm. in my house and I get distracted and don't go work out in the gym. It's right around the corner from my office. Mm-hmm. So we need the practices. We need the accountability. And I assume I'll need both of those, you know, till the day I die. So I'm just planning on yeah. keeping those things around. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, with the idea of sort of being honest with ourselves, um, the way our society has gone has become so much more in our heads 
And when we're in that place, it's easy to make excuses and rationalize all these things. I feel like a key to that being honest with ourselves is, is getting more in a heart centered place and being able to use that as the compass. I'm curious to know if that's been sort of a a process as well for yourself. It has been indeed, because again, the, the coach I work with really stresses that kind of open hearted embodiment. And, um, yeah, we've been especially in our heads. The male brain's a problem-solving machine, and we're in our heads all the time. And I found that, as you're, as you're suggesting, anything that we can do to either slow down the thinker or at least become the witness of the thinker. I mm-hmm. teach an entire class called the Ruminating Brain. It's an eight-week online class where the main theme of the entire class, we, we, there's, there's cognitive behavioral techniques, there's mindful techniques, but the main theme is to practice being the observer, not the believer of everything that spins in our head. Mm-hmm. Now, it's human nature to believe everything your mind tells you. The mind mm-hmm. believes everything the mind says is true. And the mind lies to us all the time, has false memories, has false worries about the future, um, has false comparisons and judgments and projections. And I don't know that it'll ever quit doing that because that's what minds do. Mm -hmm. But if we can learn to at least slow it down some, take, you know, even just momentary three-second breaks from thinking, Mm -hmm. and especially be that witness, that observer of, of what's going on, uh, that is so powerful. And, and again, you know, I'd say men, but, you know, I think every woman I've ever been in a relationship with had a ruminating brain as well. They could spin up the most crazy, you know, belief systems. And I'm going, how, what hamster wheel in your head spun that one up? So we all do. We, we, we live in a time machine, usually visiting the past, visiting mm-hmm. the future, and not just here in this moment, where most things usually tend to be okay. You know, if we can just get into the moment. So anything we can do to slow that thinker down, I think I think is a positive thing. Yeah, it's so funny how the mind does that. I was recently on this um, like isolation week long retreat and I was so I was in a tent by myself in a little patch of forest for very long days uh, in Canada in the summer, maybe 18 hours of sunlight and you know, there were time I would start kind of spiraling and worrying, getting all anxious and, you know, but through that awareness, I could be like, you know, there's nowhere else I actually want to be. I've been craving alone time. I'm in the middle of nature and I just need to enjoy that each moment. Isn't that great? I mean, to me, that sounds like heaven, what you're describing, (laughs) but yet I don't make that happen very often. Right. Yeah. And when I do, it's kind of like, oh, I got to check my cell phone. You know, yeah. things like that. And, and it, it really requires an act of will mm-hmm. to put ourselves into that quiet place, whatever it looks like, whether you're in a Canadian forest for a week mm-hmm. or um, I even made a commitment to myself to quit taking my cell phone with me to the bathroom. Yeah, I thought, I good. don't need my cell phone in the bathroom. What, what am I doing? I'm distracting myself from the, and thought, mm-hmm. okay, bathroom time gets to be a time of solitude. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a sacred place now. And, mm-hmm. um, and so even just doing little things like that are so powerful. And, and part of my daily commitment is to spend at least an hour a day, if I can, out, outside. And, mm-hmm. and for me, I, I live here in Mexico, in Puerto Vallarta, so it's hot and humid in the summer. But in the morning and the evening, 
I'll try to get 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the evening, just out in my backyard in the garden mm-hmm. or maybe floating in the pool, looking up at the birds and the clouds mm-hmm. and the stars. And all of that is, is so blissful. And mm-hmm. it takes, as you found, it takes a little time for to even to get your brain, you know, toned down, turned down a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it does begin with, with being the noticer of that, to notice, mm-hmm. oh, my brain spun up thinking about shit, you know, this, you know, a thousand miles away and maybe even, you know, not even in this year, maybe not yeah. even in this, this century, I'm thinking about it. And here I am in heaven. I'm in bliss. I'm in this. Yeah. And my mind won't even let me be here. So that, that does take, that's why it's called a practice. It, yeah. does, it does take practice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because we, we have access to that that feeling of heaven and bliss at most times, but so often we turn it into the opposite of that. We turn it into anxiety ridden place when it really doesn't need to be. Yeah. Um, So I'm curious, you know, when I first read your book and I started kind of sharing it with some friends of mine, you know, I found the title to be off-putting to them or like their response, you know, maybe it wasn't like something they had been talking to. And even the idea of men's work overall, you know, it was interesting when I started sharing with my parents, um, you know, my mom was very much like, oh, what's that? You know, like sort of a very, like the idea of masculinity and how it's sort of gone in the world, especially the last handful of years has, has not been overly positive. So this idea of not being a nice guy, you know, can rub people the wrong way. But I was wondering if, you know, just from your point of view, if you could share what sort of how you would define that or describe it because i went and did a the retreat that the mankind project does mm-hmm. and at the end they they were kind of prepping us to go back home and saying like okay if somebody asked you like what are you doing at this workshop you know one of the things that they were they said is like we're helping men grow up yeah yeah, it's a masculine initiation, and it, so it's a good question. Yeah, I've done the the new warrior adventure as well, and um, yeah, and, and it really stresses masculine initiation. You know, without going into detail of what they do, because they ask you not to go into detail mm-hmm. with people. Um, it's just a powerful way to bond and connect with men in a very short amount of time. Um, it's, it's not near enough time to do you know the depth of the work, but it's a really good start at it. Um, so yeah, this whole thing around around men's work. When I started working on myself about 25 years ago, I didn't. I don't know that I saw it as men's work. I don't know that I even saw it as nice guy recovery. I just mm-hmm. saw it as how can I get my wife to quit being upset at me, you know, working right. and appreciate me more for being a nice guy. Um, and around that time, I, I read Iron John by Robert Bly, and and really about. All, at least all that I was aware of, I think Mankind Project might have actually existed even then, back in, I, I'd say, late 80s, early 90s. Um, about all that I really found was like mythopoetic type stuff where, mm-hmm. where men would go off into the woods and drum and have a talking stick and say a ho and stuff like that. And, um, and I did some of that. It, it, it never deeply resonated with me. Um, and kind of fast forward now, 25 years later, I am really grateful. I mean, you know, I, I, you're, you're like the fourth or fifth interview I've done just this week, and I've got a couple more, all with men that are coaching other men or coaching people in general how to live better lives, how to be the more, more than their, their true selves. And I'm thrilled about that. I'm thrilled that 
um, even though men will say, well, where do I find a men's group? Because, you know, I'm hoping that in another 25 years, you know, that that everybody will understand men's work. Mm -hmm. And but it's moving in a really good direction, which makes me really Mm -hmm. happy. So when I when I wrote the book, as I said, I didn't set out to write a book. I was just giving chapters to, to the guys in my men's group. And um, I never, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking in terms of a men's movement. In fact, uh, when interviewers would ask me when I was on my book tour for No More Mr. Nice Guy, did did I see uh, a worldwide men's movement in the in the way of like the the, the feminist movement? And I said, no, not really, because I said I don't think there's one unifying factor to pull men together. Now. I, I, I was wrong, and maybe I was right in some ways, but uh, I was wrong in that what I do see, I, I now call a worldwide men's movement of men coming from different places to, to find tribe and masculine initiation. Right? That's what our ancestors had for a million and a half years. They, they existed, worked together with other men in tribe, and they had initiation that taught them how to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, how, how to do things that frighten them, and, and to be fierce, and to be warriors, and to be protectors and providers. We don't get that from men anymore. In fact, most of us have no positive in, impact from men growing up. So what I see is worldwide men looking for tribe. Now, they're looking for it often in different ways. It might be men getting into the pickup movement or red pill movement looking for answers and looking for tribe. It might be men getting into a divorce group when they're going through a bad relationship. It might be men getting into martial arts. It might be men getting into embodiment or consciousness raising or uh, um, you know, David Data type work. Um, it, it, men are coming at it from lots of different directions. And you, you mentioned the Mankind Prize, just one more direction. Uh, 12-step programs. I think a lot of 12-step is men not knowing it, seeking tribe and finding that connection around a, a, a shared addiction. So I do believe there's actually a, a worldwide men's movement happening, not around one particular thing, you know, whether, whether again, like I said, be pickup or embodiment or 12 steps or, or martial arts or, but, but I think it is around wanting tribe connection with men and, and becoming our best selves through some form of, of growth producing face our fears kind of experience. So I don't know that we can explain that to a lot of people. You know, the, the mm-hmm. title of my book, I, I, I get, you know, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And when, when my agent first said, yeah, I like the book, but maybe we need to change the name. And I said, that's non-negotiable. And he said, okay. <laughs> and and about, about three years ago, he and I were having a conversation. He said, um, man, that was, you know, how did you come up with the name? That was really a good call because the book's continued to done really well. I didn't tell him, Nat, you tried to talk me out of using that name, but I, I didn't <laughs> say that. But, but yeah, I, I get that it, it creates kind of a, a, um, a paradox that maybe we've all said at some point, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Um, but I, uh, people might wonder, why would someone write a book teaching men to be not nice? There's already enough not nice men out there, right? right. There's already enough jerks out there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once you get past the title, you realize that it's just building off a commonly used phrase of teaching men to be authentic and real and be their best selves. And mm-hmm. people rarely find that offensive once they get into it. So, yeah. no, it's not about teaching men to be jerks, not about teaching men to be assholes. It's not about teaching men to pick up women, even though it's a top No more Mr. Nice Guy is a top-rated dating book on Amazon. I was married mm-hmm. when I wrote it. I didn't even know how to date when I wrote it. But it teaches men how to be authentic, which is amazingly attractive to women to be authentic. Yeah. So 
I, I would say that that's how I tend to boil down everything that's happening. It's men unconsciously seeking the tribe connection with other men and unconsciously seeking the challenge to help them grow into to, to masculine adulthood, really growing us up as men. And because uh, we need it. L- little boys raised by their mothers, raised in a public school system, raised with no challenge, raised on the Internet, raised with video games, um, often stay little boys well into adulthood. And, you know, we get we get our kicks looking at porn, hiding away, trying not to get caught looking at porn and, you know, having fantasies and masturbation and being afraid to get into relationship or afraid to challenge ourselves, playing World of Warcraft till two or three o'clock in the morning. You know, all that stuff that uninitiated men do. Um, and we that leaves an empty place. It leaves a longing. And and I'm I'm grateful now that there's places that men can go find a connection with men. And there's no right way to do it. Maybe there's some better ways than others, but there's no right mm-hmm. way. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I definitely relate even to that list of, you know, little boy behaviors that you just kind of ran through. And, you know, a lot of that stuff definitely resonated with me and where I was only a few years ago. But yeah, I think it's it's amazing this idea of becoming our truer selves because it is really shedding that conditioning and it's it's mm-hmm. within us already and and as we do that you know we we do learn to love ourselves more and by doing that we are more accountable we have you know developed that discipline and setting boundaries being more direct all of those things and it just like echoes across all aspects of our lives and it's so interesting in that way um I'm curious a little bit about sort of how you see the sort of typical nice guy um, in terms of their relationships with their parents. Um, You know, I think like we were talking about before this core belief that it's not safe to be who we are is, is pretty universal um, across men and women and, and, and all guys and women, no matter how nice or not nice they are. But um, in this sort of, journey i wonder if there's a common theme whether there's you know i am assuming lack of a father or is it um abusive father in some way or is it kind of a mix of both because it seems like we as people can adapt in all sorts of ways to all sorts of stimulus yeah that's a good question because when i started working with nice guys i kind of assumed when i started hearing men kind of repeating the same things i was i thought well well maybe they became nice guys in the same way i did um Mm -hmm. and my parents had an intact marriage they stayed married till my dad died about 11 years ago um and my dad was was involved in positive ways, but could be very angry and critical and moody. And so we walked on eggshells. My mother was codependent and kind of raised me to be different from my father and be codependent like her. I grew up in a fundamental Christian church where, you know, there's a lot of thou shalt nots. And if you do this, you go to hell for eternity. And do you know how long eternity is? You know, <laughs> a lot of those kind of messages. And so I thought maybe everybody else was like that. And I have found a lot of nice guys that I've worked with. Might have some sort of strong religious influence growing up, but not all. Um, a lot were disconnected from their father in one way or another. Either dad left when they were young and wasn't around much, or dad was alcoholic or angry and not available, or worked a lot. Maybe was a decent dad, but worked too much and wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nowadays, I, I hear a lot more men talk about their dads who are nice guys. 
See, like my, my son grew up with a nice guy father. So that's more predominant is there's more kind of nice guys out there. And basically, a lot of these guys say, all I really learned from my dad was he'd just say, don't piss off your mother. You know, he, he couldn't set a boundary with mom. She ran the show. She controlled us all. And he wouldn't stand up to her. And he just taught me the same thing. Don't stand up to a woman. And so there's lots of different influences. But yes, there's usually some sort of disconnect from the masculine, i.e. no real positive, trusting, loving relationships with men. Not a, that's not always the case, but it's pretty common. And often growing up, learning to please women, whether it be you know a, a, a controlling mother, an angry mother, a, a narcissistic or borderline mother, um, or just the smothering, needy, you know, depressed mother. So often there's some that's trying to having to negotiate the feminine by ourselves, not very successfully because our mothers mm-hmm. had whatever their stuff was. It was it was bigger than we were as little kids, mm-hmm. and so th- that is often the case. Um, and then you know, for most of us men, even in, in a school system, I only had one male teacher in elementary school. I didn't get male teachers till I got in junior high or high school. Uh, so for most boys. Getting from third to fourth grade means not only learning your reading, writing, and arithmetic, but how to please a woman, right? Just to successfully navigate school and move on a grade. So those are pretty strong influences that I do see with a lot of guys, which is why I'm such a big advocate of going and getting reconnected with men and and learning to embrace our masculine self, um, that part of us. That, that is, is powerful and loving and does great things. And that masculine side of us that is dark and narcissistic and abusive mm-hmm. and hurtful. If we can embrace and own all of those pieces of ourselves, we can integrate them in a whole way. And, and I think we need men to do that. And we need men to help initiate us, hold us accountable, uh, challenge us, love us, support us. And, and so, yeah, that, that is a real common piece that I see is that, that thing that, often begins with dad. It often involves mom in some way as well. And I've, I've often told people, well, one of the, the best um, tests, if you like, start some kind of personal recovery program. Maybe you've gone to 12 steps or got into therapy, and maybe you're about six months into it, and you're getting awarenesses of what's contributed to your state and, and how to do it different. And I'll say, now go back and spend a weekend with your family. You know, go, mm-hmm. go, go visit them for a weekend and maybe even stay in that, sleep in the same bedroom you grew up in mm-hmm. and just watch how quickly you slip back into these old patterns of not having boundaries of, you know, avoiding, you know, upsetting dad or trying to please mother or, you know, putting mm-hmm. up with stuff and just watch and, and watch how it, 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 it feels inside. So yeah, the, our mom and dads, of course, were our e- earliest influences and tended to have the biggest impact on us. And As I said earlier, those are the relationships we tend to go out and unconsciously recreate as adults. So that parent work is is a big piece of it. I I went through a phase where I did not talk to either of my parents for 15 years. When I started setting boundaries, especially with my mother, and she just kept pushing through the boundaries. It's like the firmer I got with them, the harder she pushed. And um, I, I just had to disconnect from them for about 15 years. I got reconnected with my father before he passed away. And when he had a stroke and then passed away, I was with my mother in the hospital and hospice for like two weeks. And we hashed out everything between us because I'd been mm-hmm. close to her growing up. But it was a very codependent relationship. Wasn't at all boundaried. Now, for about the last 11 years, 
I've had a very, what I consider, nurturing, supportive, boundary relationship with my mom. She's still Mm. imperfect. She still can't say I love you unless I say it first. You know, Mm. I've trained her to give hugs. She can actually give and receive a little bit of affection now. But those were not traits of my family growing up, the the, uh, the physical affection nor words of affection. So I've, I've had to train my mother and She's told me it makes her uncomfortable at times and mm-hmm. said, but, but she, she seems to have gotten better at it. So yeah. yeah, that, that work, you know, she's 85 now and I'm, I'm grateful I have that connection with her and um, she probably won't be around a lot longer, but I'm grateful for the time I have with her. Yeah. I think that's a, the interesting idea of the sort of like that space and boundaries with your parents. And I've heard the term sort of breaking up with your parents for a little while and I think that is important because I think on this process, there's generally some anger to get through, some, um, you know, forgiveness to get through. Yeah, all of the above. Yeah. Then you can find some love sort of underneath that often, but it can take some time. Um, But I think another thing you said is, you know, embracing our sort of shadow side and the darker pieces of us, as well as the sort of strength of the sort of warrior Mm -hmm archetype that we have um it's just so crucial because if we don't do that it's gonna come out in a very sort of unproductive way for the most part and um yeah i mean i think just if you can share a little bit more on that and and it's from my experience in a men's group it has been the most powerful way to embrace that and the more i do it and other guys in the group i'm in do it the more vulnerable they are in those yeah. areas of shame and guilt and, and darkness, the more love they get from the other guys in the group, Yeah, which is not what we would expect, obviously, subconsciously. I, I agree with you. Uh, because of time restraint constraints, because mm-hmm. of a call I have at the top of the hour, okay. let me just touch on that because it's a good question. Um, okay. As an example, you know, the, that men's program I mentioned that I'm in, one of the exercises we've done a couple of times over the years is to do a taboo practice. And what we have to do is basically write a one-page vignette of a taboo that involves us uh, acting in some way that makes us at least a little bit nauseous, a little Mm -hmm. bit uncomfortable to, to entertain ourselves in that light. And then we share it with the group of men. And um, and yeah, you think, oh, everybody's going to think I'm I'm the worst pervert and need to be spending all eternity in hell. But mm-hmm. they, you know, you're sharing this with men, and when you get done, men are clapping and applauding, and then we we, we get playful about it, and we're teasing each other, and sometimes it's kind of hard to keep a straight face, even when some guys go really pretty dark, and you're going, "Fuck, that kind of scares me a little," you know? Yeah. But but you you love them more, and you embrace them mm-hmm. more, and and I know when I when I've done this taboo. Uh, exercise, you know, it made me uncomfortable, the taboo that, that I, I, I wrote about. And then without giving detail, I came and then introduced that taboo into my sexual relationship with my wife. And, and, and she liked it as part of our sex play now. And, and she likes it when, you know, we're playing out that taboo. And so here was something that I'd never even looked at before, shared it with a group of men, and 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 got closer to them because of that. Brought it into my marriage and integrated it into our sex life. And it's kind of like, oh, what was I so afraid of after all? Kind of like I was saying when I shared earlier things earlier in my recovery. 
People, I say this in the book, no more Mr. Nice Guy, people get close to us not because we're so perfect and do everything right. People connect with people around their rough edges. And if we let people see our rough edges, it invites them in. And that's so mm-hmm. counterintuitive, but it, mm-hmm. it is so true. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again for your time today. Really appreciate it. Ryan, thank you for the invitation. I had a great time. Thank you. All right. Well, maybe uh, we'll get a chance to talk again in the future. But until then, thank you. And uh, I'll definitely be sharing your book with more and more people as I, as I can. Thank you for spreading the word. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you listen to it on Spotify, Apple, or through our website, it would be great to hear your feedback and thoughts. If you're able to leave a review, it'll really help us share the message and share the podcast with more people. Thank you.